So firstly though, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And then to the New Testament, to Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 to 41. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark in this world, but have spoken clearly. And we pray now you be at work in every heart in this room, that we might have ears to listen and hearts to respond to your voice. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as Robin said, we're at the start of three weeks in Psalm 110. Uh, Let me just explain how we're going to look at Psalm 110 and then why we're looking at it. How? Three weeks, which means slowly. Today we'll do the first three verses, then one verse next week and the last three verses in week three. That's how we're going to do it. But each time, to help us know how to respond to Psalm 110, we're going to use the book of Hebrews in the Bible. The book of Hebrews actually is, in lots of ways, preaching Psalm 110 to a church family. So we'll keep looking there. That's how. Why are we looking at Psalm 110? After all, this kind of period in our church year is a really important one. People are starting to arrive uh, for new jobs or for new courses. Um, it's a, a time, a kind of start of new rhythms of family life. It's a great time to bring friends along and say, do you want to come to church with us? See what goes on here. It's a key time. So why look at a kind of pretty short poem from a very long time ago? 3,000 years old, nearly. Well, because Psalm 110 isn't just any old poem. It is the most amazing description of Jesus Christ and his work. Christianity is all about Jesus. I hope we know that. If you're looking in and wondering, kind of, what are we about? What's this church family about? Well, Jesus, in a nutshell. And Psalm 110 is about Jesus, which is really remarkable because it's written almost a thousand years before Jesus. I think if you are someone looking into Christian things, this is actually one of the most persuasive as well as amazing aspects of the case for Christ. The Old Testament scriptures, the first two-thirds of the Bible were written before Jesus and yet speak about him. Sometimes in amazing detail. Sometimes in amazing clarity, like Psalm 110. It's such an important psalm that it's actually the most quoted psalm or alluded to psalm, in the New Testament. Jesus himself cites it to get people thinking about his identity when he visited the temple. We've just heard in Acts 2 that Peter, his first sermon 
on that day of Pentecost climaxes in Psalm 110. And as we'll see, it's all over the book of Hebrews. It's a really big psalm. Why is it such a big psalm? Because lots of psalms do speak about Jesus in lots of detail. Why is Psalm 110 the one that that Jesus' followers come back to again and again and again if they want to explain who Jesus actually is? Why at Pentecost, having said Jesus has risen from the dead, why does Peter go to Psalm 110? Well, here's the answer. Psalm 110 tells us very, very clearly where Jesus is right now. Right now. In these last days. That's what Psalm 110 is about. So the period of history we're in at the moment. The periods where you can't physically see Jesus. But he is there and he is doing something. And so our kind of big question for the series, which um, you'll see at the top of the handout on the back of the um, service sheet if you want to follow along and kind of check our progress. Uh, Our big question for the series is, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus these days? Where is Jesus these days? And that that might kind of sound initially like kind of a bit of a lament, kind of, ah, where's the idea of Jesus gone in our culture? Why is the kind of teaching of Jesus or the philosophy of Jesus just not that popular today, going through an unpopular spell? But actually, I mean that question literally, physically. Where is Jesus Christ, the man, the man of Nazareth, the man who was born in Bethlehem and walked the dusty roads of Galilee and was nailed to a Roman cross? Where is he? To which, if you're not a Christian, I guess you'd say, well, uh, isn't it obvious? He's, he's dead, buried, long gone. I mean, he's decomposed, food for the worms. Isn't there a church built over his tomb in Jerusalem? And so he can be safely ignored if you don't like what he says. But here's the problem, if that is how you think. His tomb was empty three days after it had been filled. We've heard this in Acts. Numerous witnesses like Peter who had nothing to gain and everything to lose for sticking with the message of Jesus. They claimed they saw an empty tomb and saw Jesus walking around afterwards. And his enemies in the same town couldn't stamp out that message because the tomb was empty. They couldn't produce the body. That's the only reason there is a church to build over the site. Which leads me back to this question, where is Jesus these days? If he rose from the dead, where is he? At which point, if you're a Christian here, I guess you might be thinking, hang on, I know the answer to that question. He's with us. Jesus lives in my heart. Didn't he promise, in John, for example, that he and the Father would make home in our hearts? Colossians speaks about Christ in you, the hope of glory Matthew 28, he promises he'll always be with us to the end of the age. So so surely Christ is here. He's here by his spirit. Well, that's true. He is with us by his spirit. But Jesus Christ is still a man with a body. I wonder if you think about that. When God the Son came down to earth, he took on flesh, took on a body, 
And once he died and risen from the dead, and when he ascended back to heaven, he took his body with him. He's permanently a man now, a God-man, which means he's somewhere. So where? Well, have a look at me, with me on page 910, at verse 32 of Acts 2, where Peter is explaining where Jesus is. So verse 32 on page 910. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Pentecost was the work of Jesus pouring out the Spirit. And now here comes Psalm 110, verse 34. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's the answer. Jesus is saying where, sorry, Peter is saying where Jesus is right now. He's at God's right hand. He's exalted, enthroned in heaven at God's right hand as the king of the world. Back in, whenever it was, January, when we were studying Acts 2, I talked about lots of people think Jesus is just an imaginary friend of Christians. But he's not. He's an exalted king. He may be invisible to our our eyes down here, but that doesn't mean he's not real. How did Peter come to that conclusion? Well, he'd, he'd seen the empty tomb. He'd met Jesus risen from the dead. He'd seen Jesus return out of sight into heaven. But there's something else that persuaded Peter. He knew Psalm 110. So just turn back with me to Psalm 110. We're going to turn back. It's about 500 pages and nearly a thousand years. Page 509. Page 509. And you can see verse 1 there. A Psalm of David's. Page 509, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There it is. There's the answer. There's the language of a king who's been enthroned at God's right hand, the position of all authority. Now, before we go any further, let's just kind of get our bearings of what's going on in Psalm 110. I realise on first reading it can be a bit confusing following the conversation. What we're listening to um, is a psalm written by King David. That's what those words in capitals, which are part of the original, are saying. And verse 1 shows King David is overhearing a conversation. A divine conversation is going on. The Lord, in capital letters, is the Bible's way of um, describing God's name, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the Creator. So David is listening to the Lord, Yahweh in capitals, speaking to someone else, whom David calls my Lord. Someone greater than David is being addressed by God the Father, which at this point must have been really puzzling. At this point God had made a promise that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne of the world, But how could someone who is David's son end up being David's lord? 
How could the descendant of David who sits on his throne end up being greater than him? That's the question that Jesus posed to his um, religious attackers of his day and they were completely flummoxed. But Jesus himself is the answer. Just think about it for a moment. Jesus was a descendant of David. He sits on David's throne, but he also made David. His great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is also his maker. The Lord said to my Lord, David is overhearing a divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. And as we listen into this conversation, we're going to hear God the Father giving God the Son three jobs. We'll tackle one job each week. Um, Let's just see the first one. Verses 1 to 3 is the job of the ultimate king. Let me read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's job one, ultimate king. Job 2, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Job 2, a priest, eternal priest. And then Job 3 comes in verses 5 to 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He'll shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He'll execute judgment among the nations. That's Job 3, the conquering judge. So what three jobs is Jesus given? Well, the king, verses 1 to 3, the priest, verse 4, and the judge, verses 5 to 6. Just take a look at that on the screen for a moment. Just look at the profile of Jesus, the Messiah. He's king, he's priest, and he's the judge. That'd be pretty close to what Christians would would write now as a summary of what Jesus taught about himself. And yet this was written over 900 years before he arrived. It's absolutely amazing. That's how much notice we're given about about what God the Son will do in this world. The ultimate king of humanity, the eternal priest, the saviour of humanity, and he'll be the conquering judge of humanity. If If you're looking into Christianity, it's all about Jesus. This Jesus. The Jesus who's king priest, judge. Now, as I say, we'll do one of those each week, but I'm just going to give one spoiler of where we're going to end up um, for the whole series. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing right now. What activity is he doing in this psalm? Just look at verse 1 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit. Jesus is sitting right now. As we go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that him sitting has massive ramifications to each of his roles. So right now, he's sat down at God's right hand. That means as king, he's already sat on the throne. He's already enthroned. He's already there, sat. What about as priest? Jesus has sat down. That means... His work as a priest is finished. You only get to sit down once you've finished the sacrifices. The sacrifice is complete. Everything necessary to bring us to God forgiven is done. He sat down. And then as judge, 
Well, this is the scary bit. He's sitting, waiting. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He's waiting to judge. See, there's more to Jesus sitting down than we might realise. But let's go back to the king, our point for today. The idea that Jesus is king is basic to Christianity. If we click on one, one slide, please. The idea of Jesus as king, it's just basic. I know we will often speak of Jesus as our friend, it's true. Our saviour, that's true. Our brother, that's true. But he is never less than the majestic king of the universe. It's a sad thing when kind of introductory courses to Christianity or invitation talks to Christianity offer Jesus as a saviour without explaining he's also king. Not least because that's the opposite to the way the Bible does it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they establish his authority as king who died to save us. Peter, that we just heard in Acts 2, proclaims him as king who can save, in whose name is forgiveness. And it actually leads to all sorts of problems down the line pastorally. If you're someone wondering about becoming a Christian, you need to know that means letting Jesus be your king as well as your saviour. It means turning from living life my way to living life God's way. And make no mistake, at the moment, in some of our major denominations, there are hot disagreements going on, and this is the real issue being disagreed upon. Is repentance part of the gospel? Or in other words, does Jesus have the right to ask someone to turn around, to live his way, not their way? His way, not our culture's way. It's a striking thing. Jesus, he's hugely inclusive. He loves all people, all backgrounds, all lifestyles. He meets people where they are. He was so much better than the religions of his day in that. But he never leaves anyone where they are, whatever their lifestyle. He doesn't leave people in materialism. He turns them round. So Jesus is king. Is basic. It's core gospel truth. I realise there's lots of us here who've been Christians for a long time know that. We've been living with Jesus as our king for quite some time. Some of us decades. We're signed up for the theory. But actually, however much of a track record we have living with Jesus as king in the past, the reality is there's always a temptation to drift on this front. Always the temptation to grow a bit weary and tired of living a radical Christian life where Jesus is boss, not me, or the world around me. Because it's costly. But why? Why is it costly? My daughter Grace, the last few months, has been in the kind of why phase. She asks it about everything. Um, we're trying to think of a funny one, but there are just so many why questions, it's hard to kind of, I started to zone them out. But she just asks why, why, why. But every so often she hits a really good why question. A why question where you think, oh, hang on, I haven't actually thought about that. And it's a really good question. Well, here's a really good question. Why, if Jesus is already enthroned king, on top of the whole universe, why is it costly to be one of Jesus' people? Well, 
To answer that, you need to read to the end of verse 1. Have a look again. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Or notice the same pattern in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So that picture in Psalm 110 is, is a ruler who's already enthroned, a mighty, God-backed sovereign, who's currently opposed, temporarily opposed. There are still enemies around in the picture. A bit like Psalm 2, if you know that. There's a gap between when he's enthroned and when his enemies will actually be destroyed. That, in a nutshell, is why the Christian life hurts. Just think about Ephesians that we've been in the last few weeks. Where is Jesus, according to Ephesians? Well, chapter 1, and you might recognise these words, he is sat at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ephesians says, Jesus is where Psalm 110 says he is, chapter 1. And yet, chapter 6, we're in the battle of our lives. Our spiritual enemies, sin, Satan, death, are not eradicated from the planet yet. And that means it hurts. It hurts to be Jesus' people. Have a look back at Psalm 110, verse 3. There is a people in the psalm, verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. There's this wonderful people the mighty king has. Notice it's not a conscript army. It's not a bunch of mercenaries who've been bought off or a press gang group of slaves. It's people offering themselves willingly. That's us. That's the church, the Christian church. Uh, It's where we fit into the psalm. I trust no one forced you to become a Christian. I hope so, (laughs) if you're a Christian here. No one forces you to be here. If we're believers, God's worked a miracle in our heart to become willing servants of this king. And yet, because the king is opposed, make no mistake, It will always cost until he returns. I don't think I need to say much more on that. Speaking to this church family, we know lots of the pain individuals in our family are going through. We know the historical pain this this corporate body's been through. Major financial, practical, emotional, psychological, social costs of taking stands on issues. And why did we take the stands because we're willing followers of Jesus Christ, the King. What does it lead to? Opposition. It's exactly the picture we saw in Acts. That verse 2 is a pretty accurate summary, I think, of the the book of Acts. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Zion is Jerusalem, so God's power going out. King Jesus' power going out from Jerusalem. And yet, that rule is happening in the midst of your enemies. The gospel goes out unstoppably, Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth, and yet there's pushback, spiritual battle, opposition, enemies at large. 
just think about it. When, when Peter, no sooner has he preached that sermon we read in Acts 2, proclaimed that Jesus is the king of this city, of every city, and then he's locked up, interrogated, beaten, and pretty soon Stephen is martyred and it's still going on around the globe today. What's going on? Where is Jesus? What happened to King Jesus? Well, Psalm 110 told us just what to expect. The king is opposed temporarily. He waits until his enemies are made his footstool. It is a really gracious thing that he waits. If you're not yet a Christian, that means you're not one of the willing people of verse 3, but one of the enemies. And it is gracious that Jesus waits to give you time to hear of him to turn to him, to find forgiveness. But even for us who are Christians, we need to be reminded to keep enduring the costs. We should never underestimate how much we need this reminder because the costs are very visible and the king is invisible. The pressure comes on and you you feel that temptation. Couldn't you just swap him for something slightly easier or just redesign Jesus just slightly? Maybe take out the king bit or the judge bit from later in the psalm. Remember I told you about uh, Grace's, my daughter Grace, uh, her imaginary friends, Ben and Frida. It was just um, Frida and then Ben got added. um, I don't know if I told you this, but during the summer, Robin got added as a third friend, which was really interesting. Um, but I won't tell you more about that. Uh, and we can, again, the, the culture around us will think, well, why can't you just do that with Christianity? Why can't you just tweak it a bit? Add some things, take some things away. It's what most Western kind of revisionist theology is doing in our academies. We're tempted to join in because our hearts are idolatrous. So we need to be encouraged to keep living with Jesus as our king and that's where Hebrews is really going to help us the book of Hebrews is is kind of extended sermon on Psalm 110 it's delivered to a church that have a good record of costly gospel service it's a church a bit like Chalmers actually but that group of believers were tempted to, to grow weary and shrink back from the cost of following Jesus to drift to a kind of softer, easier, more publicly palatable religion. In their case, it was Judaism. That got less stick in their culture. It's just something that doesn't have the kind of sharp edges of Jesus, the exclusive bits. And the book keeps saying, keep going with Jesus even when it hurts. I think we need to hear that. We'll need to hear that before we plant a church. We'll need to hear that as we try and speak to friends and neighbours about the Lord Jesus. Jesse and I actually thought we needed to hear this. I'm about to give you an insight into our kitchen. I don't know if you're curious about what our kitchen's like, but I'm going to put up a picture. Um, Here it is. I'm sorry, there's not much kitchen, but that's on the kitchen wall. Uh, That's a a whiteboard that we have on our wall. Uh, As a way in the chaos, total chaos of family life, uh, Jesse puts up uh, Bible verses and truths for us to kind of meditate on whenever we see it in passing. And this was earlier, separate from these talks, this was um, maybe February this year. Um, you, I, don't worry if you can't read the words, I'll tell you what's up there. It, it's verses from Hebrews 10, you don't need to turn there. Verses saying, keep going with the cost of gospel ministry. Let me read what it says, Hebrews 10, 32. 
Recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you, had a, you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. To a church that stuck their neck out in the past, being publicly ridiculed, partnered with others who are being pilloried in the press or the courts, who've lost possessions, who've given generously to gospel work. Well, despite all that amazing track record, there was a danger of growing weary, shrinking back from the fight, bowing to external pressures. And as the cost of living and speaking for Jesus grows in our culture, we have need of endurance. We need to keep willingly offering ourselves to the king. And that is the challenge, isn't it? To do it willingly. Not just because someone's kind of browbeating you from the front. Not just serving from the rotor, but serving from the heart with joy. And Hebrews tells us if you want to keep serving and sacrificing with joy, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the way. That's why it keeps turning to Psalm 110, to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's an old cliche, the way into the Christian life is the same as the way on, but it's a good cliche. You begin the Christian life or investigate the Christian life asking, who is Jesus? You keep going asking, who is Jesus? And so, for our final page turn, our final point, and don't worry, it won't be long, but just turn to the start of Hebrews. I just want to show you how the book that's trying to keep us going starts. Um, I'll give you a page number when I myself have it. Page nine, uh, page 1001. So there isn't a page number on it, so get near and then turn forward or back. So page 1001, Hebrews chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 1 and I want you to listen out for Psalm 110, okay? So I'll read verses 1 1 to 4 and then we'll jump to verse 13. Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world He's the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited has become more excellent than theirs. And in verse 13, to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I hope you heard Psalm 110 verse 1. It's there in verse 3 and verse 13. Sat at the right hand on high. Hebrews opens saying, Jesus is king already enthroned at God's right hand. And just look at the application, chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, 
we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. If you know that Jesus is the king of Psalm 110, the first application is listen to him. Listen to his voice above any other voice. Those of you who have taken up Robin's offer and in small groups, I wonder how you feel if you got to your first small group and an angel turned up, like an actual angel, a kind of unmistakable angel, blazing, white clothes, glory, booming voice, clearly, clearly, unmistakably an angel. I wonder how everyone else in the group would react when they said something. I guess you wouldn't get that kind of, that's interesting, what do other people think? Or, oh actually, before we go on, can I just show you, I don't know, cat videos, or I've got a story I'd like to tell you. I guess there'd be a kind of, whoa, we need to listen to this. But actually... The whole of Hebrews 1 is comparing Jesus with angels and saying that Jesus is way higher. What if the voice of Jesus turns up in your small group when you open the Bible? He holds the highest authority in the world. In my teenage years, I was actually quite excited about angels. Um, some of them, a youth group I knew, claimed they'd seen an angel. And honestly, for a while, I was praying, Lord, help, help me see an angel. Um, I went to conferences, prayed hard that that would happen. I never did see an angel, but it was only afterwards when I understood Hebrews the first time, I realised I was chasing exactly the wrong thing. There is no one compared to the Lord Jesus. He's the enthroned king over all, which means we must listen to him. It means there can be no other gospel than the one he declares. No one has the right to redefine the gospel, not the church, not the state, not the General Assembly, not the House of Bishops, not the House of Commons, not the leaders of large evangelical churches, not the leaders of small evangelical churches, not even angels in heaven can redefine the gospel. And I'm not just saying that, that's the book of Galatians, Paul says, look, if an angel turned up and told you something different, from the message of Jesus, or a different version, don't listen. There's no authority that can trump that king. What other gospels are on offer? Well, next week we'll think about the gospel that Jesus' work isn't finished, that we have to contribute to our standing with God. But this week, and I think it's the most pressure we face in our culture, this week it's the gospel that you don't need to turn around. The gospel that doesn't have Jesus as king. Just come and be saved and accepted and forgiven and don't worry too much what Jesus says in the Bible. There's no other gospel than his. That's the first aspect of this. Secondly, listen to Jesus in all parts of life. One of the most damaging and powerful lies in our culture at the moment is that God only has rights in the private sphere. So it's a Sunday, so he can, he can kind of call the shots here and we're in church, so we'll listen to him here. But, but go out there, well, you're not bringing Jesus into this office or this sports pitch or this political discussion, to which Psalm 110 says, hang on, hang on, hang on. I mean, yeah, Jesus isn't about a political agenda. He's not trying to just transform society. He's got bigger things um, de- he's dealing with than that. 
But make no mistake, he is the ultimate king of every person, every country, every square inch of every place, every hour of every day in every diary. He's bigger than angels, bigger than Moses, bigger than Boris Johnson, bigger than Nicola Sturgeon. He's bigger than our boss, our neighbours, our colleagues, our family, our friends. It's his voice we listen to in all areas of life. And then finally, listen to Jesus each time the Bible is read. When we hear the Bible read or uh, taught, including right now, we need to remember who's addressing us. It's very possible to get so distracted by um, roast preacher over lunch that you forget that the king of the universe was speaking in that passage. Or it's possible to go through a Bible study just thinking, burble, 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 when are we going to get to the end and pray for each other? The king of the universe is speaking. It's possible to become the, the sermon equivalent of a food critic always rating, but never feeding. It's possible to come looking for a a certain experience on Sundays, rather than trembling at what will God say to us this week. It's possible just to forget, isn't it? I mean, we're so overwhelmed by information these days. We may listen carefully to Jesus' voice in this room, but by the time we're down the road and have replied to a couple of texts and maybe seen our emails, well, it's long gone. Well, the more we consider Jesus as the king at God's right hand, the more we realise he is speaking to us, the more we'll listen and willingly offer ourselves in his service. And if you don't yet know that King Jesus, I would love to speak to you and explain why it's worth it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please shine your light in our hearts that we might see your glory in the face of our King Jesus. Amen.